0: This is Ryan S. Walters, author of The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding, and you're listening to A Call to Rights with Steve King.
1: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to The Call to Rights radio show. For well over 15 years, The Call to Rights radio show has been teaching Americans and people around the world all about our sacred Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our Second Amendment, and so much more. And we on the Call to Rights Radio Show always say this is the main theme. Always refuse to be a victim, because in our opinion, a victim is simply someone with no options. Always fight back legally and responsibly. And today, we go down memory lane here as we continue to interview many of the great authors that Regnery Publishers provides us. And today, from the Regnery History Line, very special guest, and a repeat guest to the Dr. Sky show as we do the other show, Ryan S. Walters, his book on Apollo 1, a great book that every space-loving person should read. But today, we go back to a more interesting time in American history, maybe about 100 years ago, the book entitled The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. But before we do that, a little brief outline of our very special guest. Ryan Walters, as he's here to talk to us, ladies and gentlemen, about this book and the many things that are inside inside the book. Ryan is Walters, independent historian, teaches history at Collin College, and is the author of Grover Cleveland, The Last Jeffersonian President, and Remember Mississippi, How Chris McDaniel Exposed the GOP Establishment and Started a Revolution. He lives in North Texas with his wife, Candace. And to set the stage about this book, The headline of this book that we're talking about today should be this, The Most Wrongly Maligned President in U.S. History, President Warren G. Harding. With that, Ryan, welcome to the Call to Write Show. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be here.
1: Well, this is amazing. You write so many wonderful books here, and I just can't wait till the next one that comes down the pike. But this is interesting. You know, I have to admit to this audience and to you, sir, as our guest, I was pretty much one of those believers from when we were in school, that goes to high school and college, the little bit that we learned about American history, sad to say, that I was told pretty much by reading this information and regurgitating back to teachers that President Harding might have been, from what we heard, the most maligned president. No, he was probably the worst president ever, and by some, as you described with this particular book, a, quote, complete and dreadful nitwit, end of quote. How wrong!
0: Is that according to your research? Well, it's totally wrong according to my research. And and <laughs> yes. you, look, you're not you're not you're not um, an exception. You're you're actually the rule. Most people would would consider him the worst president. And public opinion polls, presidential surveys, bear that out. I, and I did a lot of research into the polls. And one I found very interesting, where they divided the poll uh, the, the those that they surveyed, they divided them up into conservative and liberal categories. And just to see if there was any uh, change. And both of those categories chose Harding as the worst president. So it's just what people are learning in school. And as you said, you probably don't learn that much about him. And most of the nope. people that are teaching uh, the Roaring Twenties, Harding, Coolidge, and that era, uh, they don't know very much about him. Uh, they're, they're, they didn't, those that are teaching the classes, they probably didn't know very much about it. So there's a lot of professors that don't know anything about it. It's just become the standard line Well, Harding was terrible, and so they just move on down the line. But once you dig into the record, which is what I did, and looked at primary sources and really looked at what he did and what he was facing, you come away with a much different record uh, that's been portrayed. So much of the history is just, it's so biased today. Um, And everybody's biased. I'm not trying to sit here and say that I'm not biased. I am, and I'll admit I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, most people won't admit that. So you have, to, you have to get through a lot of that kind of stuff, and, and actually just go to the sources. Go to the primary sources and look at what actually happened, and you'll come away with a different story.
1: Well, this book is great, but I guess we have a bigger problem here. You didn't create it. You're trying to help solve it by talking about truth and what? Truth so set us free that in schools today, and not to go off on this tangent here about what we should be learning, but who knows, maybe why not, Apparently, unless somebody like yourself writes a book like this, the same old has-been information is going to just go on forever. And in today's world, where I think in so many schools, talking to so many parents, that a complete revisionist history education is seemingly coming down the pike, how are we ever going to know anything? That's why I'm glad we have you here today. But I got to start the interview off about this. We're talking about 100 years ago in America. And really, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of time. But if you do the research, 876,000 hours ago, I know that sounds like a long time in the world, but that really isn't. But let's go back to 1919, a little more than 100 years ago. There were so many problems, and here we are, what, uh, faced with this whole thing of COVID-19. Tell us a little bit more about how the world looked at this whole thing with the pandemic back then, because it was also horrible, and it's also the lead story about how we move on to Warren G. Harding.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to do is sort of set the, you know, set the book up, and because a lot of historians criticize Harding and, and some of the myths that I tackle in the book, and one of them is, well, he didn't really have a lot of problems to deal with when he came into office. Most of the problems had been dealt with, and that's not mm-hmm. true at all. Right, 1919 was one of our worst years, but if you ask most people what happened in 1919, they don't they don't know. They don't know. They didn't know a lot of the things that went on. Uh, coming out of World War One, as you mentioned, 1918, we ended World War One, And then, of course, we had the pandemic that year, which was Spanish flu. Okay. And, uh, which was pretty deadly, um, particularly in those days before modern medicine, um, particularly worldwide, it was a terrible pandemic. And then, of course, you move into 1919, we ended up with terroristic bombings. There were anarchist groups and Bolshevik groups in the country that were setting off bombs. David Bomb, the Attorney General of the United States, home. Um, you had labor strikes all over the country, you know, thousands of labor strikes and, and millions of workers going out on strike. Um, uh, the red summer of 1919 was horrific racial violence. There were lynchings and and really pitched battles between whites and blacks in, in cities across the country. And then, of course, you move into 1920 and the economy falls apart into a depression. So it was, it was really literally one thing after another that was hitting the country when Harding That's ran right. for election in 1920. And his yeah, this is amazing campaign slogan we, was perfect. We, right. We hear about the Great
1: Depression, but yet you're talking right. about a time period that's what? Almost 10 years before that. Right. And in that period it, of time, we, ne- we never learned that in school.
0: Right. Right. It's it, it skipped over, and, and economists have come to call it the forgotten depression in American history. And it's pretty bad, but it didn't last very long because they used different methods to tackle it. They didn't throw everything the government had at the problem. And, and of course, so it was over with in about 18 months. But it was pretty bad when you look at the numbers. I mean, uh, unemployment went from 4% to 12%. Industrial production fell by half. I mean, you got inflation. Inflation was about 15.5%. So everything was pretty bad coming off all that violence in 1919. So the country was in really bad shape. And Harding comes in with the perfect campaign slogan, return to normalcy. And that's exactly what people wanted
1: at the time. Interesting. Yes. Y'all remind everybody here on the Call to Rights Radio Show, special guest today, a second time appearance here, repeat appearance, he's welcome here anytime, Ryan S. Walters, a brand new book, ladies and gentlemen, from Regnery History, from that division of the great Regnery Publishers, the Jazz Age President, defending Warren G. Harding, things that I didn't learn in school, and that's why this guest is always welcome here, talking about what really happened by his great research. Talk about the man, Warren G. Harding, we're talking about a man from Marion, Ohio. And it seems like in your book, you go on to talk about so many, what, presidents have come from Ohio, great legacy of the leaders of the United States. But describe this man. I mean, he was a, what, a newspaper owner? Is, is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, he, he owned the Marion Star. He was a um, got into journalism as a young man, and as a reporter, he actually, uh, with some friends, scraped together a few hundred dollars and bought this Marion Star newspaper, and he eventually bought his friends out, and he was the, the owner, owner and editor. Of the Marion Star all his life, he eventually sold it while he was president. Um, but that was sort of his first love. He was the first uh, journalist we ever elected as president. Interestingly, in 1920, he ran against James Cox, the governor of Ohio, so it was sort of mm-hmm. a battle of Ohio. And Cox owned newspaper, so it was a, it was a, a race between two journalists, which is kind of a unique little factoid there. But Harding was a um, a very good man. He's been tarnished with you know because of the scandals and. And some of the other things, he liked to party and drink a little bit as a young man, had a few extra male affairs. But Harding was actually a very, very good man. He was very, very well-liked, not only at home, but in his his hometown, but in his his business. He always treated his workers very well. And reporters that covered him said he was the nicest man they ever met, people that worked for him in the White House, um, did a lot of good things for the people in Marion, Ohio, was very well-liked there. He just got along with everybody. He wasn't. He was not like Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was an arrogant guy, and most people that rubbed people the wrong way. A lot of people didn't like Woodrow. Uh, you can look at what happened at the Versailles Peace Conference after World War One. A lot of people right. um, were unhappy with Wilson the way he was. Wilson was a very arrogant guy. He was an academic, had a PhD and a law degree, and he thought he was the smartest man in the world. Harding was humble. You know, he said several times he didn't even he didn't think he was qualified to be president. I mean that's actually exactly. that's actually a nice thing to hear.
1: You know, it that, sure that, is that, especially from what I've read about Woodrow Wilson. And again, we never got to get the whole you know story. And this isn't all about Woodrow Wilson, but you write so well about what he was involved with. But again, not to go after Democrats versus Republicans. But I've even heard that he also had some racial overtones to him. In some of these movies that we've seen, and I know Dinesh D'Souza, who's been, been producing movies about what he believes is the truth, he talked about how there was some allegations of, I don't know, the uh, support that President Wilson had for the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, is, is that mm-hmm. something from history that is even accurate at all, or am I totally off the page on that?
0: No, Wilson came up, he was raised in the, in the Deep South during Reconstruction in Georgia mm-hmm. and South Carolina. So he had the attitude at the time of of, of many white Southerners and really a lot of white Americans at the time, which is one of white supremacy. He believed in uh, white supremacy and segregation. And there had been some strides in racial reconciliation in the country at the time, even the federal government. Uh, A lot of African-Americans had had gained some fairly prominent Mm -hmm. positions, but Wilson stepped in and resegregated the entire federal government. And the city of Washington D.C., even like the streetcars and things, um, and he blocked anything that had to do with racial progressivism at the Versailles Peace Conference. So he was he was uh, very much a racist and a white supremacist. I mean, he did a screening of uh, D.W. Griffith's uh, film, *The Birth of a Nation*, and he um, at the White House, which is a glorification of the Ku Klux Klan uh, during Reconstruction.
1: Really, how so, sad?
0: Yeah. What's that? That's
1: a, I said, How sad. That's amazing. You know, you have Yeah, yeah. And of course,
0: Harding comes in, and this is what most people don't realize. And this is what I really wanted to point out. Harding comes in with almost exactly the opposite attitude. Um, and he tried to move toward racial reconciliation. He called for a civil rights bill and an anti lynching law wow. and gave a speech in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, you want to talk about political courage at the time? He goes to Birmingham, Alabama, the heart of the old Confederacy. Yes. Gives a speech to a segregated audience and says it's time to start giving blacks equal treatment, education opportunities, um, economic opportunities. Now see, there should be another president that did that or anything like that. No. Um, so he he met with uh, you know, African-American delegations. Um, so he had a much, much better record on race. But again, um, he's supposed to be this terrible president, so nobody ever talks about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so ending off on Wilson, I mean, this is something tragic to the man himself. He winds up having, what, a series of strokes, and then in American history, this is another thing we really weren't taught, in your book you go into somewhat, uh, some detail, I hope I have this right from reading the book, that Wilson was totally out of the loop, and what, his wife and others were actually running the country, unbeknownst Mm -hmm. to maybe maybe many Americans.
0: Yeah, in that awful year of 1919, when all that was going on, Wilson was focused on trying to Get the United States to join the League of Nations and getting the Treaty of Versailles ratified by the Senate. Mm-hmm. And of course, he had a lot of opposition, and he was so stubborn and arrogant, he wouldn't sit down with Republican leaders and try to work out a deal. He, his position was, no, it's you're gonna, you're gonna, the Senate's got to take its mess It's all or nothing. And so he's going around the country trying to whip up support for his treaty, and suffered a suffered a number of strokes. He got back to the White House and apparently had a pretty bad one. And he was really incapacitated for uh, seven or eight months, and wow. his wife Ellen was actually—excuse uh, me, uh, his wife uh, Edith. Excuse me, his first wife was Ellen. She had died in 1914, but he remarried Eve uh, Dalt. and she was actually running the running the show. Um, they they covered this up. I mean, this was not out in the paper that he had a stroke. And he's in the bed, and they keep him covered up, and she signs documents in his, you know, in his name. And if people had to come see him, they just said, well, he's not feeling well. He's ill today, and he's in bed. And they would cover up his paralyzed side, put some papers there like he was working, and he would talk to the person, and they would usher him out. So this was really a, a massive cover-up. Now, how much she was actually running it is, is a matter of speculation, but she was certainly in charge. She was that type of woman. Yes. So people I always tell my students, you say, we hadn't had a female president. We actually did for a number of months in 1919. And he never did really fully recover from that. He got better. But his stubbornness got worse. Wow. And, of course, and, and the Senate voted down uh, the treaty, and we course. never joined the League of Nations, which I think is a good thing. Well, I agree with you, because what, in the many
1: ways, that was a prelude to the United Nations, but a little more severe, I gather, right? I don't know much about the treaty.
0: Well, yeah. And of course, it's a lot like NATO that any member nation, we were pledged to go to war if any member nation was attacked. Mm. And that was what the problem was. Harding was in the Senate at the time and he helped stop the League of Nations. And that was really what the problem was because Congress's position was, wait a minute, we declare war. We decide when we go to war, not somebody else, not the League of Nations or or anybody else. And so that's what they wanted fixed. But Wilson wouldn't have any of it, so it was voted down actually twice and never voted on again.
1: Folks, Ryan S. Walters, he's our guest. He's here for the second time. This time, a book from Regnery History. And another of the Regnery History books that we've had him here on is about Apollo 11, and that in the Dr. Sky Show venue. But today in the Call to Rights program, the book is The Jazz Age President Defending, Warren G. Harding. He's welcome here anytime. And by the way, this book goes to the top of the Call to Rights bookshelf. Obviously, tell us where people can get this book. Uh, Simply, I say, wherever good books are sold, but any more details on that?
0: Anywhere good books are sold, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. It's probably in some stores um, on the shelves, but uh, of course, this day and age, most people order their books, which is what I do, so um, it's pretty easy to find. Sounds good
1: to me. Well, here in part two of our interview here on the Call to Right show with our special
0: guest today, let's talk about the
1: election of 1920. And how Warren G. Harding, of course, gets to become the nominee and then becomes the president of the United States. And interestingly enough, another of the individuals as far as we talk about in history, Calvin Coolidge. We never really learned a lot about him. So talk about how he gets to the nomination, how he gets to be the candidate and the selection of uh, this other interesting guy, Silent Cal, right? Uh, There's just the diametric opposite of the personality of Warren G. Harding. Talk about that whole scenario.
0: Yeah, one of the myths I like to tackle in the book, and it's it's perpetuated. I've I've heard it a thousand times in classes and things that Warren Harding was not the first choice of the Republican Party, and he was nominated in a smoke filled room, hotel room in Chicago, by a group of senators who wanted to choose him and have a president that they could control. He was pliable, and he would you know he could be led around. Absolutely, none of that is true. And the way people need to understand this is we have presidential primaries today, and that's what how we select our nominees. They had primaries in those days, but there weren't but a handful of them. You still had to run in the convention in the old format. And people say, well, they sat around in a hotel room to, to pick out candidates. That's the way every nominee was chosen. Lincoln, any one of them you want to, since the advent of national conventions in the 1830s. So the problem was the two leading candidates were deadlocked. And so they met in a room and said, we've got a we can't, if this deadlock continues, this convention could go on for days and weeks, which yeah. is not what you want in an election year. So they said, who's, who's somebody else that this convention might uh, turn to, that they might accept? And Harding's name was mentioned. But you have to understand, the delegates at the convention are the ones that have to choose the nominee. Right, it's not like these group of senators walked out there and said, "Hey, we want Harding, so everybody not nominate Harding." That's not the way it worked. It took a number of ballots before Harding got to the majority, so mm-hmm. he was chosen that way, which is no different than almost any other nominee has ever been chosen. But then yeah. Coolidge was, as you said, he's Coolidge is diametrically opposed to Harding in personality. I mean, they're a night and day in personality, but their political philosophies, their economic philosophies. Were exactly the same,
1: very, very well. It's interesting, right? As you describe in the book, the Democrats take a shellacking, and this is like a hundred years ago. Based on their policies, what right. filling what the United States Congress with a Republican majority doesn't that in one way, Ryan, sound almost like reminiscent of what they're hearing? We're hearing from what the pollsters are saying today might very well happen in the year twenty twenty two. How amazing how history might repeat itself?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's exactly it's exactly what's happening. Because you had a very progressive president and of course we got one now, uh, whoever that is. And of course, uh, mm-hmm. in nineteen eighteen Republicans took control of both houses of Congress, and in nineteen twenty it was a landslide for Harding and Coolidge. The convention chose Coolidge, they wanted a conservative ticket, and they were the first ticket to win over sixty percent of the vote. So the country was decidedly Republican. There's no they had completely rejected Wilson and internationalism, and the League of Nations, and progressivism. The country was ready for normalcy, and what they mean by that is conservatism. Going back to the way we used to do things, not all these conservative, I mean, progressive reforms, and and internationalist foreign policy, people were fed up with that kind of thing. And I think that's what's happening now. Absolutely.
1: I mean, and we watch, it. it's almost like a mirror image. And interestingly enough, about 100 years ago, things are repeating themselves in historical fashion here. At least that's what we think. But here's something, I think, on the lighter side. I learned something from your book in the trivia side. Maybe I only have a couple of the many special things that happened during that particular inauguration. But am I right? It was the first radio broadcast of an actual mm-hmm. inauguration and the first time that automobiles were used to, what, uh, ferry the two candidates? I mean, the, yes. the two electees from uh, the Capitol for the White House uh, to the Capitol. Interesting.
0: Yeah, the uh, first radio broadcast in the United States was actually in November of 1920, and it was to announce the results of the presidential election that Harding and Coolidge had uh, Mm -hmm. won the presidency and the vice presidency, and and you're correct. And and on Inauguration Day, March the 4th, 1921, they'd always been in a horse-drawn carriage. Now they used an automobile and, of course, Mm -hmm. broadcasted over the radio. Radio became very popular in the 1920s, and people... That was one of the big hot-ticket items in, in the 1920s was the sale of radios. Wow.
1: That's amazing, and it's only 100 years or so ago, and we talked with yeah. our very special guest here, Ryan S. Walters, on this book. Really, folks, if you want to learn about history from a man who's done the research, the Jazz Age president, Fendi Warren G. Harding, I think sets it straight on a course that's not revisionist, it's the fact. Something else that I wanted you to talk about, obviously the country's getting back to what we call the Roaring Twenties, the economy, of course, they, re- they rebuild, but something else is going on here. And another big myth, and remember, this is what we did learn in school, that Harding had this worse administration, and it was, you know, racked with scandal. Talk about this Teapot Dome story, because I think it's fascinating. And then I have kind of a funny thing to ask you, because we've heard this term used. Describe what Teapot
0: Dome was from your research, not what we might have thought. Yeah, Teapot Dome was the most well-known of the scandals. He had three, and the first two he had dealt with, I mean, people were fired, people went to prison, um, a couple of people actually committed suicide uh, because yes, of the scandals. Right. But Harding didn't sweep things under the rug or anything. People were uh, punished for wrongdoing. Teapot Dome, we had naval oil reserves that were set aside in the West. One of them was Teapot Dome, Wyoming. That's where the name comes from. Okay. And they were for the... Uh, Navy Department, in case we got into war. They weren't for private drilling. But the Interior Secretary, a man named Albert Fall, who had been in the Senate, Harding's choice as the Interior Secretary, convinced the Navy Department to transfer him under his um, department so he could oversee him. And of course, what he did was lease him to two private oil men in exchange for bribes. He was hurting for money. So it was just a simple corruption scandal. It's actually rather rinky-dink in the terms in the term of one scholar as opposed to what's going on today and what's, what we've seen in the last few decades. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but Harding didn't benefit from any of these things. Of course, Harding passed away in office before Teapot Dome broke. He found out about it just before he died. And I, I feel certain he would have done something about that. So it's a little unfair mm-hmm. to criticize him for something when he died, before he could do anything about it. He was on a westward tr- uh, trip, went all the way to Alaska. He was in California when he passed away. But the P- Albert Fall went to prison. He was the first cabinet member to go to prison. Uh, well, i got America to ask history.
1: you this uh, on a lighthearted note here, and I don't mean to be funny, but when we talk about corruption and a sting operation, let's say law enforcement comes into a place and raids the place, and they yep. capture who they think the the big guy is, or somebody else who they intentionally have as the term fall guy, is that where we get the fall guy
0: comment about the fall guy from this man? Or though. No? That's interesting. I don't know, but it probably so. I mean he was the first cabinet <laughs> officer it, to fall. Yeah. <laughs> and he I was the fall was, guy. Right. Because the two exactly the oil men didn't get in trouble. The two oil men, they didn't do anything to them. It was it was Albert Fall. <laughs> who, who, <laughs> so who, he's the fall guy. The <laughs> yeah, he was the fall guy.
1: <laughs> Very interesting. You bring up so many good things here, but I want to ask you in, in almost conclusion here, because you know time here. The time is, of course, a precious here, and we appreciate your time. But that's what runs these shows, of course. What's the main theme of what you want to get or message from this book out to everybody who's out there who's not only just interested in history, but those people that are just interested in finding out about human nature? This is interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, I think you have to realize that history is not always what it, the way it's portrayed, and you really have to be careful about when you're reading history, who's writing it, and what what purpose that they're writing it. And a lot of times the truth is there, but you have to dig to find it. So um, I'm hoping people can learn about the 1920s, or they can learn about Harding, and I hope they learn the fact that, again, American history is full of lies, myths, and deceptions. And, you know, get out there and do your own reading and, and research and look into these things. And a lot of times you're going to find out the truth far different than what you've been told.
1: How about that? And that's a very good way almost to end this, but i got to jump in with something here you write or allude to in your book toward the very end of it, and we'll save the details for people who buy the book. But what I'm trying to find out is here, you're describing all depressions, because we realize we had this depression, called the Great Depression, 1929, whatever the reason was, you write here, and I think I agree with you, that all of these depressions are caused by, what? Bad economic policy. And Mm -hmm. it's so interesting, almost like a mirror image, talk about this for a minute, about what's happening now when they have inflation and then they start to raise interest rates and they did exactly these things back before the Great Depression. Why the hell don't we learn from all this? And describe <laughs> that path, if you would, so people understand what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we should do with our history. Our history is not there to tell each other stories and entertain each other. It's to learn from. And so many of our depressions throughout history are not only bad economic policy, but monetary imbalances yeah and that was what happened in nineteen twenty nine They try to blame Hard again Coolidge for that, and i, I go into that into the book because what we're dealing with now, of course, what I contend the happened with the Great Depression was um it was a great deflationary depression. What they were doing was pulling a lot of money out of circulation, which is what Milton Friedman's thesis is on the Great mm-hmm. Depression, which is very interesting. What are we seeing now? The Fed has printed in the last I think three years what twenty trillion dollars. Right, quantitative easing. Yeah. Right, there yeah, you go. and they pumped all that into circulation, and of course, the inflation numbers today are eight and a half percent, which I find interesting when they look at the with the methodology they used in, in the early '80s, the Carter inflation years that Reagan inherited. Our inflation rate today, using that methodology, would be nineteen and a half percent.
1: Wow. And that's affecting everybody, Ryan. I mean, your family, my family. I mean, how can people, look, this is off subject, but it's just an emotional knee-jerk reaction I'm going to give here to the audience. How the hell can people sustain gas prices that are so high? Friends in California are paying, what, nearly $6 a gallon? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just not, Mm -hmm. and then apartments, like here in Phoenix, we're talking about apartments, a one-bedroom apartment is going, my friends are having, they work three jobs $1,900 $1,900 a month, that's, un- that's non-sustainable. So what yeah. the hell are these people trying to do to us that we- we're common sense smart? I don't understand what's happening.
0: Uh, well, yeah, we've got we've to squeeze this money. When you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you pump money into circulation like that, particularly mm-hmm. stimulus checks like that, you're just handing people money. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, what, this is the price you pay. This, this is what right. happens when you do that. And we've got to go back to sound economic policies. Look at what Harding and Coolidge did. Look at what Reagan did in the eighties. He right. cut that inflation rate down significantly. Of course, you got to get a tight money man at the Fed. Um, but they've got to they've got to quit spending this money. Of course, Biden's out there saying spending money's got nothing to do with it. It's got everything to do with it. Well,
1: everything I think President Biden needs to read books by von Mises because I yep, think if you look at that economic philosophy, you know, and I've, I've yeah. interviewed so many of their people from that 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 think tank. But it's just common sense. You don't spend more than you make, and you try not to do that to, you know, on, a, on a recurring basis, because what would happen if you and I did that? We would be bankrupt, and our credit score would be zero, and we might even wind up going to jail, but I guess they don't have debtor's prisons yet, correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And of course, you and I have, a, the other problem you and I have, we don't have a printing press. We're not allowed to counterfeit money. They, right. Now they are. They can print it out of and in, and and create it out of thin air and put it into circulation. And of course, this is this is the price that people pay.
1: Well, I didn't mean to get off on personal you know, philo- you know philosophies of economics, but I guess why not when you're writing a book that's so amazing about non revisionist history about your research is finite and it's it's definitely real. I believe you. That look at the things that have happened in the past, we should be able to learn from these mistakes. But apparently, human nature doesn't seem to want to hear the truth. But thank you, Ryan S. Walters, for joining us here on the Call to Rights Radio Show. I hope you'll join us again. And, and am I asking this question out of line, but uh, what, what can we expect from you in the future? Any look-see into new books that are coming down the pipeline?
0: <laughs> well, I'm working right now on a book on the Vietnam War, so that's sort of a passion of mine. I've been to Vietnam five times and uh, Have you? studied the war a lot, so um, I'm looking at in-depth in the Vietnam War. And so maybe next year is, the, of course, the 50th anniversary of our agreement to leave Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, 1973. So hopefully I can get it out next year. I hope I can.
1: Well, I'd love to read that book and share it with this audience. And just on a side note, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to speak with Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers. And I thought that was fascinating, but it wasn't on that book. It was about something about nuclear proliferation. I learned a lot mm-hmm. from him, but I think he'd be a great guy. If he's still alive, I, I hope so. To talk to him about,
0: him. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to get a hold of him and talk to him a little bit when I get into no. the Pentagon Papers. But, uh, you know, my position on the war is it was unnecessary. Of course, I'm looking at it from mm-hmm. a standpoint of being born after the war. I didn't live through it. So right. um, but when you look at the lies that were told, I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable. Well, Ryan, I'm older, but not
1: necessarily smarter in those subjects. And That's why we defer to our special guest, Ryan S. Walters. Thank you for being on the Call to Rights radio show. Stay on the line with us as we go to the heartbreak at the bottom of the hour. That concludes this exciting edition, as I'm sure everybody out there would agree. Great guest here on this radio show talking about our Constitution, American exceptionalism, our Bill of Rights, our Second Amendment, and so much more, with the main theme of always reminding everybody out there what? Always refuse to be a victim. A victim is simply someone with no options. Fight back legally and responsibly, and don't be a victim. I'm sure Ryan would agree. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Thank you, sir.